We'll hear argument first this morning in number 98-223, Florida versus uh, Tyvoras. Ms. Nurkowski. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Today, the State is here before the Court seeking to have Florida Supreme Court opinion in White versus State reversed based on that Court's determination that a requirement under Florida law and under the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution mandates that there be a neutral magistrate sought and a warrant obtained prior to the seizure of a vehicle under the Florida Contraband Forfeiture Act. The state would direct its attention to cases, in particular Cooper, in particular United States versus Watson, as controlling in this case. The Solicitor General will focus on the applicability of Horton to this case and the plain view theory that has been presented in some of the briefs. The way this came up, Ms. Nurkowski, was that evidence was found in the uh, ashtray or something of the car, and that was introduced at trial? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. What happened uh, on October 14, 1993, the defendant was at his place of business. Uh, the officer, Pierce and Officer um, Stewart, had the ability to go there under a search warrant to arrest him for unrelated drug uh, charges. At that time, he was placed under arrest. His keys were taken from him. The keys to his car, which was in a parking lot, which was the Sam's parking lot, uh, the car was taken, driven to the task force uh, community. It was not searched. It was just seized at that point. It was taken to the task force facility. At that point, it was searched. Uh, two crack cocaine rocks were found wrapped in toweling in the ashtray of the car. And was the car taken because it was forfeitable, or was it taken just because he was arrested and something had to be done with the car? This was not incident to a lawful arrest, and it was not because of um, anything more than the officer's belief that it was under forfeiture. There had been uh, three previous occasions when Mr. White was seen uh, dealing drugs out of the car, and under Florida statutes 932.701-04, the state has the ability to seek forfeiture of a vehicle that's used as an instrumentality. So from the moment they, they put the key in it and took it away, it was because Based. it was forfeitable? Yes, Your Honor. And how they long? They have no probable cause to believe that <clears throat> the vehicle had been used for the transportation of drugs? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the first part of your question. Did, did the officers, has it been determined that they had probable cause to believe that the vehicle which they seized had been used to transport illegal drugs? Yes, Your Honor. There had been three previous occasions where one of these officers had personally observed, and there was videotapes of the defendant actually selling drugs out of the car. And Florida law makes the car used for that purpose to be, uh, makes it possible to forfeit it. To Subject to forfeiture. Now, you don't rely on GM Leasing Corporation case? Yes, we do, Your Honor. We I would have thought that was the closest case. You didn't even mention it. I believe that that has been mentioned in the other briefs. But, yes, uh, in looking at this case, we believe that that is a pertinent and germane case to this one. Uh, The reason the state started out with the Cooper decision is it's believed that, in that case, there, uh, the subject matter of scrutiny was the search following the seizure. And the seizure at that point was was under a forfeiture statute and was not in question. Uh, it seems reasoned and followed that if in this instance where the inventory search is not in question in this instance, that both the seizure and the uh, search uh, are satisfied, uh, satisfied the Fourth Amendment with regard to practices engaged in by the Florida. 
Ms. Nurkowski, what, yes. what troubles me about the case is the long time interval between the uh, between uh, the time when the, the police had probable cause to believe that the vehicle had been used for a crime and the time when they uh, elected to uh, uh, to seize it as forfeit. Um, I, this raises the possibility of, of the police creating a, a sort of uh, evidence depository by simply identifying a car and just leaving that car out there for years and years until they until they finally determine that it, it, it has evidence that they'd like to have, whereupon they they move in and seize it. Uh, what what, uh, what assurance is there again? I mean, that doesn't seem right to me. Well, first of all, in, in this instance, all the uh, activities that occurred that generated the need or the ability by the state to forfeit occurred prior to um, any activity going on with it, regard to this particular, this last event. It wasn't that the car was suddenly sitting out there doing nothing. There had been three occasions when uh, Mr. White was selling drugs out of his car. The probable cause that generated was generated by that was to forfeit the car. It was not to um, ascertain or have probable cause to seize the car. In fact, the car could have been seized at the moment they saw the drugs being dealed. Well, I know that, but that's my very point. If you say they seize it right away, I don't see a potential for abuse. But if you say once they see it being used for a drug transaction, they can there, thereafter just put in their file, you know, license number, whatever, can be seized at any time, and then wait until they think there may be some evidence in that car. And the real reason they're seizing it thereafter, or at least the real reason for their timing, is to obtain the evidence and not to, and not to forfeit the car. Well, in all due respect, I think that under Wren, this Court has indicated that we're looking at an objective standard as opposed to a subjective standard. The police officers have a legitimate basis under Florida's contraband statute to seize the vehicle. So they could have done it three years later, uh, five years later. Well, there is certainly case law that reflects that the time — it seems to me that the probable cause doesn't become stale, doesn't change, because the vehicle itself is the criminal act, no, the fact that was used. That's exactly what troubles me. But you, you, you acknowledge that, that it could have been seized ten years later. Well, it probably could have been, but the, the likelihood of it, it — it, passing scrutiny with regard to the ultimate review of the search itself. We're talking about whether you have to go to a neutral magistrate to seize the car. It's you do apply this, Ms. Nerkowski, to a Venice-type case? Let's say the, the city has an ordinance that if you engage in prostitution in your car, it will be forfeit. And then uh, the police say, oh, we saw this guy two, three times in the summer. And then it gets to be October and his car is sitting out there in a shopping mall, and they say, oh, well, now, well, now we can take the car because we saw it uh, three times this summer, and if we're questioned about it after, we'll say that, but we don't have to go before any magistrate or anything like that. I take it from what you've said so far that that would also be okay. Yes. I believe — There's no distinction between those two situations. I, I believe that the instrumentality, instrumentality itself, the car is what is the offender here, not the actions. The actions may precipitate that the car is being used, and it may be incident. And, in fact, under Florida statute, there is a defense to incidental or accidental use by the vehicle, and therefore it's not subject to forfeiture. But if it's, an, if it's part of the criminal conduct, and in this instance, perhaps — uh, where one is soliciting for prostitution, the car in and of itself might not be. I'm, I'm giving you a local ordinance. I'm sorry. That was before this court where the right. car was forfeit, 
if it had been used for an act of prostitution. Right. And I asked you if in, in that particular case the car was impounded on the spot. Mm-hmm. But suppose it hadn't been taken then. And the police said, well, it's forfeit, so uh, we'll take it two months later. And let's take another case in that same line. Let's suppose the city has a measure that says cars that are driven by drunk drivers are forfeit. Right. And if someone is apprehended for drunk driving and and the police decide for whatever reason they're not going to take the car that day, and three months later they see it at the parking lot of the place of employment and they take it. Well, I think it depends upon, again, we're, uh, the case before the court is the Forfeiture Act with regard to the drugs and other criminal endeavors. But uh, to expand it to the argument or the suggestion that you've made that it has to do with uh, drunk driving, as we've seen some news stories out of coming out of the state of New York, uh, that very well may be a basis if, in fact, it's the instrumentality used to pour help in, involved in the crime itself. I- I don't suppose getting, if delay is a problem, I don't suppose getting a warrant would change things. Absolutely. And well, but would, would this issue come up? I mean, the, the reasonableness of the search is going to be judged in part by reference to the, to the, or the reasonableness of the seizure. It's going to be judged in part by reference to the object of the seizure. Here, the object of the seizure is, is punishment. Uh, it's an extra penalty uh, for, for, the, for the, the act involving the contraband. Uh, and I think it's probably accepted, I think it's accepted theory today, that uh, the further in time between the act that is being punished and the imposition of the penalty, uh, the, the, the less effective it is, the less reasonable it is to be imposing it. So it would seem to me that there's a fair argument that the longer the police wait without some kind of, or the state waits, without some justification, the further removed the seizure becomes from the, 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 a reasonable relationship to its object. And at some point, I suppose, that would affect the Fourth Amendment analysis. And I I also assume it would affect the Fourth Amendment analysis if a warrant were being applied for. Uh, is, is that an illegitimate argument? I think that there is probably some truth to the fact that time could pass so long, but it doesn't mean that the probable cause in any way deteriorates. It may be other well, factors. Well, that's, that's right, but the, the ultimate question is the reasonableness of the search, exactly. and you've got to have the probable cause, but we all know probable cause can, in fact, be dissipated uh, or, or rendered nugatory by various things that happen after you get it. And in Justice Scalia's example of the five-year wait, uh, I mean, it, it, it really stretches credibility to say that a five-year wait without, you know, some extraordinary excuse that we don't have in our hypo uh, can reasonably be related to the ostensibly punitive object of the law. And if that is so, don't we, in let's say the five-year example, don't we have to confront uh, the unreasonableness of the search in relation to its object? Yes, Your Honor. And in fact, uh, well, I know. Would you agree that the five year search then would violate the it, it very well. I keep saying search. You right. Seizure. seizure. It, very well, very, it very well may be, but it, it doesn't impact with regard to the probable cause. It impacts upon the reasonableness. I, I, and that I, certainly would be something that would be under scrutiny upon a challenge to the validity well, of the seizure and ultimate search. It might affect the probable cause determination in this regard.
required that if you get a warrant, you have the judge or the magistrate makes the determination, whereas an adv- there is an advantage there. And secondly, presumably the magistrate would make it promptly. Then you'd have the warrant in, the, in your desk to use whenever you want to serve it. Whereas if you wait three years or six months to do it, then you have to, your probable cause determines is based on what you can remember of what happened six months earlier. And the facts are less clear than if they're established uh, and the warrant obtained at the time. That's true, but the underpinnings of the probable cause here is that some, an instrumentality, a car was used during the course of a criminal endeavor. That's the basis upon which sure. the probable cause arises um, under the Florida uh, statute. Uh, Again, the, if, if, if delay is a problem, do you think the problem would be allevi- alleviated by keeping a warrant in the police officer's desk for three years and then serving it? No, Your Honor, and, and that was what I was trying to get to. The, the, nor- the, the point is that under the facts of this case, and I believe most of the facts as presented in the hypotheticals, a magistrate would have issued a warrant the next day or 10 days or 100 days because it was if there is probable cause to believe that that vehicle, in fact, was used during the course of a criminal endeavor to its selling drugs, that, that car cannot wipe yes, itself away of the crime. And, but that also survives transfer of ownership. Say somebody, say the car was sold in the meantime. You'd still be able to seize the car. If you had the warrant, you go to the new owner and say, this is why I'm seizing it. The judge decided it was used this way. And if you go to the new owner three or four months later and say, well, the, your predecessor owner used this car improperly, we're going to seize it. It seems to me there's a factually the citizen might react a little differently to this service in the two cases. But in fact, but in fact, under the statute, there is a very speedy ability to have redress with regard to wrongful uh, uh, taking of the vehicle. And in fact, but it wouldn't be wrongful defense. taking, would it? I mean, the well, new. The new owner wouldn't have a defense, would he? Yes, because under the statute, it, it applies to those individuals who, we, under the Florida statute, it applies to those individuals who are innocent with regard to. Oh, but then it's not just the vehicle. is not. It's not like the deodan. The vehicle is not the the, the criminal. Well, it, bec- it can be wiped clean in in. By selling it. Pardon me? You can, you can exonerate the vehicle by selling it? Well, under the Florida statute, it show, it's, it's, we have a provision that says, for example, spousal ownership. If that person can demonstrate that they had no knowledge with regard to that, that the car will not be forfeited. So there are provisions that protect, but that doesn't mean to say that because we put provisions that protect, that the instrumentality suddenly is cleansed. It just means that we're not going to forfeit oh, because this is not the target. What about sale to an innocent Per bona fide purchaser. Mm-hmm. Is that person subject to forfeiture or not? Uh, Does that cleanse the car? The car is not cleansed. What happens is that the purpose for forfeiture has changed because it's no longer, the car no longer is being forfeited because somebody engaged in a criminal endeavor. If an innocent person now owns that car, that person didn't do anything to that. No, but the car had been used, the car committed the crime, I thought, under your theory. That's right. Under, under forfeiture theory, the crime, uh, when the ca- crime occurs, the car becomes an offender in, or offendee. And it ceases and to be an offender when it's sold. Well, it doesn't cease to be that, but it certainly it has, it has less basis for support for the ultimate forfeiture of that vehicle. I don't see why. Is time for executing a warrant unlimited in Florida? If a magistrate gives a warrant, uh, can it be executed Three months later, four months later? There's no specific provision that allows for time limitation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Nerkowski. Uh, Mr. Stewart, we'll hear from you. Mr. Stewart, would you mind telling us exactly what 
kind of an exception to the warrant requirement you're supporting here? It certainly isn't clear to me from the State's argument. The, 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 rule, the State's asking for. The rule we're advocating, and I think it is uh, supported by a number of this Court's decisions, is that when items of personal property are found in public areas, they may be seized by law enforcement officials based on probable cause without a prior judicial warrant. Now, some of this, this Court so, so if the vehicle had been parked in the owner's driveway, could it have been seized? The, the driveway is a close question. If it had been parked in the owner's garage, for instance, an area in which the owner would clearly have a reasonable expectation of privacy, the car could not have been seized, on our view, without a warrant. So what's the, your position on the driveway or the curtilage? Our, our, position, on the dri- our position on the driveway, generally speaking, uh, is that a driveway is not within the curtilage, and therefore the owner would not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. There was actually a case uh, in the Seventh Circuit, United States versus Redmond, that involved a, a related issue in which law enforcement officials conducted a search of trash cans located at the, the point of the individual's driveway that was closest to the house. And the en banc Seventh Circuit split eight to five held that the individual did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in his driveway. We think the same rule would uh, apply to seizures of a vehicle from a driveway, but in fairness, given the way that the Seventh Circuit divided, we can't say that that's a settled question. It depends on how much is left of the Coolidge decision. That's correct. But but at any rate, the the dividing line would be, as to any particular location, did the individual have a reasonable expectation of privacy in this place? The garage, clearly yes. A public parking lot, clearly no. The driveway is is somewhere in between. Is the purpose for the forfeiture, as you understand it, because uh, this particular uh, chattel is is, is a nuisance, it's a dangerous instrumentality, it should be removed from the — well, I, I mean, a car, a, a car is not per se dangerous. Clearly, part of the justification. Why, why are we forfeiting it? In order to impose a punishment? It, it is partly to impose a punishment. It is partly out of a belief that so long as the car remains in the hands of this owner, who has previously utilized it to facilitate criminal activity, there is a danger that that activity will, will occur in the future. So even now, now if, if, if the latter is the rationale, uh, then doesn't the delay that we're concerned about enter into the calculus? That is to say, if there is a long, long delay before this uh, uh, automobile is seized, doesn't that indicate that it is not such a dangerous instrumentality that forfeiture should be used? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to find some standard by which we could um, uh, protect uh, owners uh, against the unreasonableness that is caused by deliberate delay, which can be used to harass persons. I guess I'd have a couple of responses. The first is that, at least in most cases, the owner can't claim to be injured simply by the fact that he's allowed to retain and use his property longer than he might have been. I I think, second, we would draw an analogy to warrantless seizures of the person, warrantless arrests. That is, it's established law that a warrantless arrest may be conducted in a public place without a warrant, even though a warrant would be required in a private place. And, And it might seem intuitively as though once police have probable cause to believe that an individual had committed a crime, the natural thing to do would be to arrest him immediately in order to remove the the danger from the streets. However, I think it's generally understood that there may be countervailing concerns that would justify some form of delay. The police might want to see whether this person was acting in confederation with others, uh, might want to see whether it could locate bigger operatives within the criminal organization, and therefore the police are not required to arrest an individual as soon as they have probable cause to believe that he has committed a crime. And you're saying there's sort of a notion of reasonable delay. 
but conversely, I assume there, there, there is the thought in, in what you're saying that there may be an unreasonable delay in seizures. Well, certainly the, the primary limitation on the amount of delay that would be considered reasonable in the arrest context is the statute of limitations. That is, as a practical matter, the, poli- the police couldn't wait so long to arrest the individual that the statute of limitations had expired. Okay, well, let's get to a case, of, you know, a seizure case like this. Uh, I, I threw out the idea in, in talking with, with your colleague that if the, if the object is, is essentially punitive, uh, then there's a point at which the punitive rationale really begins to evaporate. And I don't know when that point was reached, but we thought perhaps if there had been a five-year wait, it would have evaporated. Would, would you agree with that? I, I think it would depend upon the, the circumstances. I think the first place we would look is to see whether the legislature that had established the forfeiture statute had itself made a determination as to what period of delay was unreasonable. So well, that, you know, that might be a good basis for us to inform ourselves about contemporary standards of reasonableness, but at some point, uh, the reasonableness would dissipate, I take it, on, on your rationale. At some point. I think that has n- nothing with respect to do with the warrant requirement. That is, if, for instance — I, 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 I agree with you. If, for instance, Florida by statute had said property can't be forfeited based on its use in criminal activity more than five years ago, then if police have evidence that the car had been used to facilitate narcotics offenses six years ago, the seizure would be no good because there would be no probable cause to believe that the property was forfeitable under the statute. That would be so regardless of whether the police attempted to seize the vehicle without a warrant or whether they went to a magistrate or with a warrant. And and as the Chief Justice pointed out, I think to the extent that the Court regards the, the possibility of unreasonable delay as a problem, it's not a problem that would be solved by imposition of a warrant requirement. Do you rely here at all on the fact that the car is a movable object? Certainly we think the rule we propose is not automobile-specific, but we certainly think that the mobility of automobiles reinforces the general principle announced in this Court's decision. I would have thought the principle didn't rest at all on that. Am I wrong? Well, what what the Court has said in In this case, where there's a forfeiture statute because of the use of the vehicle. Well, the, the general principle this Court has announced is that items of personal property found in a public place may be seized with it without a warrant. And one of the justifications the Court has given for that general rule is that, at least in many instances, uh, the property, personal property is susceptible of being moved away quickly. And we think that's all the more true in the case of an automobile, but the, the rule, is, we propose, as I say, is not automobile-specific. It is probably the type of rule that it is particularly likely to be invoked with respect to automobiles simply because the automobile is a type of personal property that is very often left in in public places. Mr. Stewart, you said a second ago, I agreed with you a second ago, that the problem of staleness and dissipation of reasonableness is going to occur whether there's a warrant or whether there isn't, and I I think that's right. It doesn't, though, I think, follow, uh, as, as you suggested a second later, that that makes the warrant requirement irrelevant. Because it seems to me that if there is a warrant requirement, uh, we're going to have some magistrate uh, considering at the time the warrant is issued, i.e., prior to the actual seizure, whether, in fact, uh, the delay has dissipated the reasonableness of the search on, on, the, on the theory on, on, on which uh, forfeitures are, are uh, required. And therefore, we, we will have a situation, if there's a warrant requirement, in which some cars are not going to be seized uh, illegally. Uh, and uh, so it would seem to me that if there is, in fact, a, a dissipation rationale, uh, 
there is a good reason, therefore, to, to have a, a warrant requirement so that uh, there is there is some neutral judgment uh, between the the officer and what may be a quite unlawful seizure. I think I think that that is not true because the the problem you hypothesize is no different in principle from the problem that may always occur when the police undertake a warrantless seizure of property from a public place. That is, it is always the case that police might misjudge the question of whether there is probable cause to affect the seizure. Yeah, but here we're not talking about, I mean, you're quite right. They, they may get the probable cause wrong, but now we have uh, yet a, a further element. Uh, and it's not a probable cause kind of judgment. Uh, and, and therefore, doesn't the further element at least provide a further reason for saying uh, that, that a warrant uh, would, would, in fact, be helpful in effectuating the Fourth Amendment. Well, the, it's the, true. Maybe we can get by without it, but something would be served by recognizing it. Well, the, the further element would simply be the legal determination of what period of delay would be regarded under the law as unreasonable. And that, again, is no different in principle from the judgment that police make when they decide whether to effect a warrantless arrest. That is, in order to determine the existence of probable cause, they have to decide not only what has this person done, but what does the law require or prohibit. And consequently, the probable cause determination is inevitably entwined with, with police officers' judgments about the applicable legal standards. They may get the was wrong, and it's true that interposing a magistrate might reduce the incidence of error. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. <clears throat> Mr. Golden, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The State of Florida had 68 to 80 days in which to obtain a warrant to seize this vehicle. They didn't bother. The State of Florida has now had six years and about 20 minutes to explain why they didn't get a warrant. They haven't done so adequately. Simply, our position is this. None of the traditional warrant exceptions to the Fourth Amendment apply. There is no civil forfeiture exception to the Fourth Amendment. And under the circumstances of this case, the police were required to get a warrant. How how do you distinguish the Cooper case and the GM leasing case? Cooper versus California only dealt with a subsequent inventory search after the car had been seized. The issue was not placed before the court as to whether uh, the seizure was appropriate. No one argued that, so that issue was not decided by this court. Well, but the court certainly assumed that the seizure was appropriate. It may well have assumed it, but that just simply was not an issue before the court. At that point, it was assumed that it was valid, and the only issue that you decided was once it came lawfully into the police's hands, uh, into the police hands, whether they had a right to conduct an inventory search. And Cooper versus California, as far as I agree, the decision simply stands for that proposition. How about GM leasing? GM leasing represents the tax levy on a public street exception to the Fourth Amendment. In GM leasing, as you'll recall, the revenue agents went first to the home of who turned out to be the fugitive tax debtor two days prior to the seizure of the car, and they informed the wife, I believe it was, of the tax debtor, and also the son, that uh, there was a tax debt and that their assets were subject well, to Well, GM leasing involved a warrantless seizure of a vehicle in a public place, and this Court upheld it. Yes, but GM leasing was not a forfeiture case. GM leasing was a case where the government had a tax debt that it was satisfying, which it did by first filing a lien two days prior to the seizure in the Salt Lake City County Courthouse and then proceeded 
to levy on the government's debt. Moreover, they why, why should it make any difference the fact that it wasn't a forfeiture? I mean, why should forfeiture produce a special, a special class of rules in connection with warrant and no warrant? Probably because tax assessments seem to create a special class. The tax assessment is Well, is that what the Court didn't say that in GM leasing? What the Court did say — You can distinct — you know, you can say that the South Dakota against Opperman, the inventory case, involved a van, so it doesn't cover a car. But we don't distinguish cases that way. What the Court said in GM leasing was you went back to the history of the tax legislation and the taxing power, which is a constitutional power. He went back to the history of that and said almost well, you, say, you say the taxing power is a constitutional power. Do you think that the forfeit, enactment of a forfeiture statute by Florida is not a constitutional power? No, it's a statutory. It's a statutory uh, right that they're giving law enforcement. Well, but certainly under the, the allocation of government in our system, uh, the Florida government has as much right to enact a forfeiture statute as the United States has to enact a, a taxing statute, does it not? Uh, it certainly does that. But first, the Constitution specifically provides for the uh, collection of taxes. Secondly, in Bull versus United States and various other cases that you have dealt with in relation to taxes, you have justified this on the base, basis of the prompt collection of the revenue of taxes, saying that, in fact, the very realm or the very United States or government depends upon the prompt collection of taxes. I think the question, at least mine, would be how could it be a reasonable thing to seize a car in a public place without a warrant to satisfy a tax debt, but it wouldn't be a reasonable thing to seize an instrumentality of a crime, a car, in a public place. I mean, how could the one be reasonable but the other isn't? An instrumentality of a crime would seem as historic, uh, as uh, uh, necessary, uh, at least as seizing a car to satisfy a tax debt. I mean, that's the same question, but I'm looking for the distinction. Well, one thing, of course, you've the tax debt has been determined to be a tax debt, according to the, your tax cases. They you mean you have to determine it beyond probable cause? In other words, just having the probable cause to seize the car to satisfy the debt, they wouldn't have been able to do it? To satisfy the debt or the forfeiture? No, to satisfy the debt. I mean, does, what, what was the is — that, is, that, is that open? I mean, in other words, you're saying if GM leasing, uh, if they hadn't had — if they just had probable cause, it would have been constitutionally forbidden? Is that the point? Well, GM leasing was not a case that involved probable cause. What well, but the court in GM leasing specifically said it took the case limited to the Fourth Amendment issue, and because there was probable cause, even though it was a warrantless seizure, it occurred in a public place, and it was valid under the Fourth Amendment. Now, I mean, the court didn't get into this tax issue at all. I think you have a very hard time distinguishing the principle involved in that case. Whether it's reason or not, whether, whether it did or didn't get into it, my problem is one of logic or reason, not a problem of precedent. I don't see the distinction between — well, you, you heard what I said. So. Okay. Well — What is the distinction in your view? The, the distinction, at least in my view, is that at least in the civil forfeiture area, they did not have a specific exception that has been validated by this Court to the Fourth Amendment for a seizure. There now exists, as I said earlier, a specific exception for the seizure for tax levies, which means a tax judgment, because a tax assessment is equivalent 
to a tax judgment. Well, we make a lot of exceptions to uh, uh, other constitutional principles in the tax field, don't we? I mean, yes, we do, and I hope you. We allow that. we allow the government to uh, to take your property before the, uh, uh, the the actual tax judgment is issued, don't don't we? Yes, we do, and in they, fact, they Bill can take it United. now and try and and you know uh, and try the tax case later. That's exactly right. We don't generally allow that in the criminal law, do we? No, we do not. And that's what Bull versus United States says, that that's the system that we have in taxing, that the assessment comes first and the defense comes second. And maybe, I don't maybe we trust tax gatherers more than we trust uh, uh, criminal law officials. I, I don't know, but in light of the legislative problems and hearings recently, maybe you'll reconsider that. But that's not the case here. The case I, here. I want to, I'm sorry. I want to make sure I understand your, your, your response to Justice Breyer. Was it your response, in effect, as to GM, that in the GM case there had, in fact, been a tax judgment and that that would have been the analog of the hearing before the magistrate uh, and, and, therefore, there was a kind of process that had been satisfied there going to the question of the reasonableness of the seat? It was not only a kind of process because, first, a tax assessment had occurred, which is equivalent, apparently, in tax law to a tax judgment. Secondly, a lien had been filed. And third, they had gone to the place and informed at least the wife of the tax debtor of the imminence of that. So they had notice and opportunity. Okay, but I take it then, I just don't remember this. They, they, there had never been even an ex parte judicial proceeding in the GM case, had there been? No, other than that they went to the county courthouse and filed a tax lien. So at least you had notice and opportunity, which is more than, than you have here. Notice and well, opportunity to do what? You may not even know it. Uh, what, what? To institute whatever procedures. Stake out in front of the car and, 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 and <laughs> well, beat, beat the seizure with armed force? What, well, what good did the notice do you? Well, the notice did do them something because they call, hauled off a bunch of car, crates of information and stuff in the other part of the Well, case. notice but, provides legal notice in, uh, as, uh, on a constructive notice theory, but in fact the, the owner of the property may not have any actual notice whatsoever. I mean, a filing is simply a filing. True, although, and you're right, you're placed on constructive notice, but the owner of the property, at least the wife's owner, did know. And the only reason the owner of the property didn't know is because he was a tax fugitive at the time. But this was not part of the Court's rationale in GM, was it? That was part of the foundation from which the Court's rationale sprung. Well, it was, the, it was a fact of the case, yes. but the Court did not explain that fact as being essential to its holding, did it? No, the Court essentially explained that the immediacy for the collection of revenues is historically been an exception for a seizure of that sort for a tax assessment. In that very, I think it's paragraph C, I forget, it's just a very narrow little area where they actually talk about the seizure of the car in GM. So you're saying there was a kind of economic exigency rationale in GM? The court in GM indicated that it was an economic exigency, and they cited about three or four very old cases for that proposition, Bull versus United States, Springer, and several other cases. It is your position, as I understand it, that a warrant would have been necessary even if that car had been seized when they first saw it being used in an illegal drug transaction, assuming, assuming that there were no exigent circumstances, that they, that they had time to get a warrant. If there were no exigent circumstances, yes. If none of the traditional exceptions applied, yes, they would have had to get it a warrant. It isn't just uh, if, you, if you don't seize it right away when you're seeing it being used illegally, and you want to seize it later, you need a warrant. You need a warrant all the time. No, you don't need a warrant all the time. If they actually came upon him while he was, for instance, selling drugs out of the car and they had 
probable cause to believe that drugs were in the right. car and that the car was movable or maybe moved because the occupants were alerted, then I think the car exception would p- apply, at least to the point where they could search. Well, so then, then your answer is that if, uh, if they had seized this particular car when they first saw him dealing drugs out of the car, they could have done it without a warrant? Yes, if they'd done it right then, yes. So it, it's just — that certainly it wasn't the reasoning of the Supreme Court of Florida. The, 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 I don't think the Supreme what Court — What the Supreme Court of Florida — I'm, I'm — I haven't finished. I'm sorry. I think what the Supreme Court of Florida relied on was just the fact that you need the warrant regardless of any delay. The Supreme Court of Florida, I think, said that there were no exigent circumstances and that that was admitted by the parties below and that that's why the car exception was inapplicable. Yes, and so — but did you read the opinion of the Supreme Court of Florida as relying on this delay factor? I think delay was intrinsic in it. Because well, what, what you say delay, was intrinsic. Did the Florida Supreme Court mention the word delay in its opinion? The Florida Supreme Court set out the dates that occurred between the illegal activities that occurred and the ultimate arrest of the person and the seizure of the car. But um, did, did they rely on that in their reasoning? What they said, well, their reasoning was that simply the car exception didn't apply because yeah. there were no exigent circumstances. Could you help me with another thing, which I, I haven't sure. found, and you probably know. Uh, I have a bell in my mind that there used to be something called uh, 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 the, the government's power to seize contraband uh, in a public place or an instrumentality of a crime. Is there no such historical tradition uh, that the government can take the instrumentality of a crime uh, in a public place? Well, I think what you're talking about is no, the, plain, talking? The, the plain view exception. And under the plain view exception, that if oh. the officers are in a public place and they come across either evidence of a crime or per se contraband, that is, contraband which is just unlawful for anyone at any time to possess, then they can see What about an instrumentality of a crime? Does no, that I think what we have here is derivative. No, but I'm, I'm saying in terms of what you just said, is it part of that tradition that they could seize in plain view an instrumentality of a crime, which I guess would be evidence of a crime? Yes, if it's evidence of a crime. The car here... Not, there's no separate thing for instrumentality of a crime. No, the two that I understand are evidence to be used in a crime, or contraband, per se contraband. Now, Mm -hmm. in one 1958 Plymouth sedan, you stated that a car, such as a car in this circumstance, where drugs may have been sold out of, in that case, I think it was alcohol that carried it, that that is derivative contraband. That's not the same thing as per se contraband. No, no, this is not contraband, but the reason that this is not evidence of a crime is? First place, they didn't seize it as evidence of a crime. They didn't introduce it below as evidence of a crime. And more importantly, when an officer seizes evidence of a crime, an officer doesn't then take the evidence back and proceed to either sell the evidence and keep the proceeds or to use the evidence for their own personal benefit, which the statute allows. The statute allows the seizing agency to either keep the car that they seize for the agency's purposes or... Unforfeited items were often evidence of a crime and would often be sold if that's what the law provides. I mean... Uh, isn't a car that you're selling drugs out of often, if not here, evidence of a crime, namely the crime of selling drugs? Not usually. And there may be purposes for which it can be. For instance, Cardwell versus Lewis. In Cardwell versus Lewis, they came and take, took paint chips off of the car, and then the car might have been evidence in a crime because their theory in Cardwell versus Lewis was that the car bumped the victim off and hit the victim's car, and therefore it was evidence of crime. But that's not the, the situation here. 
Mr. Golden, what do you make of the, the history, which I, I think was uh, put forward in the government's brief, that, that on the heels of the proposal and the, the adoption of the Fourth Amendment, uh, the Congress of the United States uh, passed legislation which, among other things, authorized the seizure of, of ships that had been used in carrying contraband and in, in smuggling, uh, and, and, and it authorized the seizure without any warrant, and this apparently has, was, was never thought challengeable at the time and is therefore some evidence of, of the extent that they understood the warrant requirement of their, their, their new uh, uh, their, their new search and seizure provision uh, to, to cover? Well, I think for ships are, I hate to mix analogies, but a horse of a different color. Ships are on international waters. You have one option with a ship, and that is to seize the ship, because if you don't... Well, the, yeah, the ship can, can leave the harbor, the, the car can, you know, be driven to California. It seems to me that there's a pretty good analogy there. Well, at least if it's driven to California, it's still within the continental United States. Uh, and it's much easier to locate a car. Mexico. <laughs> Baja, California. All right, right? All right. This That's what he meant. Even then, it's limited, but it's easier to track a car, at least while it's doing that, uh, through registration and various other means, than it is to track a vessel on international waters, particularly a vessel owned by foreign powers. Do, do you have another basis for distinguishing that practice? <laughs> What, the maritime? Other than it's historic for maritime, because that was the only, that was the only practical thing they could do for a ship. It, a foreign power owned the ship. If they didn't bring the race before the court, they could do nothing except maybe go to war with the other country. Well, I would have supposed that if there was a ship in the harbor that had been shown to, uh, to, to have uh, goods being smuggled in, uh, that they could have gotten a warrant for it. I suppose they could, but again, because of what the... In any case, your argument is that the ship uh, involves, again, a, uh, a justification of exigency and that that's not present with the car. Pardon, I didn't hear that. That the seizure of the ship without a warrant rests on a justification of exigency, whereas the seizure of a car under a statute like this does not. Yes, it, yes, yeah. yes. Um, which brings up, actually, Calero Toledo. In Calero Toledo versus Pearson Yacht Leasing Company, uh, a vessel was involved. And what they sought in Calero Toledo was um, an adversarial pre-seizure hearing. And in Calero Toledo, you said that there were three reasons as to why um, that they were not entitled to an adversarial hearing prior to seizure of the ship. The first reason uh, was that it would place these people on notice that the owners or possessors, in that case the possessors of the vessel, that would place them on notice and that they then might abscond with the vessel. The second thing you were concerned about in Calero Toledo was that if you gave them an adversarial hearing, which we're not asking for here, that if you gave them an adversarial hearing, then the, the delay occasioned by that would allow them to continue to use the vessel uh, for illicit purposes. And the third thing you noted in Calero Toledo was, or the third reason for which you decided Calero Toledo, was that the disinterested government was the seizing agency and not some interested private, private agency. Taking the first reason first, we're not asking for an adversarial hearing. An adversarial hearing might put the person in the car that allegedly has carried illicit contraband in it unnoticed and might give him a reason to flee, but an ex parte judicial warrant won't do that. Secondly, there is certainly no evidence in this case that the government was concerned about continued use of the car for illicit purposes. If they had been concerned about that, they wouldn't have waited 68 to 80 days 
into what I contend, based on the record, they cavalierly went down and seized the car. And thirdly, for the third reason in Calero Toledo, the government is not disinterested in this case. The seizing agency benefits from this. In Harmelin versus Michigan, you said, when the government benefits, when the government benefits, you have to scrutinize the government more closely. That is the situation that exists here. The government is going to benefit. The seizing agency is going to benefit. And human nature being such as it is, that is going to color the issue of probable cause. When a neutral and detached magistrate makes the determination of probable cause, the neutral detached magistrate is not only not engaged in the competitive enterprise of ferreting out crime, but the neutral and detached magistrate is not going to get a piece of what's seized or revenue for what's seized. Why was that not the situation in uh, Calera, Toledo? That was not a government seizure? No, it was a government seizure, but they said the disinterested government. Oh, that, was a, dis- that was a disinterested government. Right, right. And how, how do you tell the one from the other? All I know is that in Florida, we've got an interested government because I the, the, I the seizing agency is going to get the proceeds. Who, who was going to get the proceeds from the ship in, uh, in Calero, Toledo? I don't know, and I'm not sure how the Puerto — that was a Puerto Rican statute, and I'm not sure exactly what occurred with the Puerto Rican statute. You think maybe it was going to be distributed as a tax refund to the <laughs> populace at large? I doubt it. I don't see any difference yeah. between that case and this one. I think it's very likely that the money was going to go into the government's treasury. It may, oh, there's a difference between the money going into the government's treasury, where it goes into the general fund, as opposed to where the seizing agency, the officers that get to seize it, get to either keep the vehicle and say use it for undercover purposes or to later. Okay. Well, do they — I know this happens in some cases. I know it's in Florida. But if, if they sell the, uh, the, the seized vehicle, uh, does the money go into, in effect, an appropriation account for the police agency itself? Do they, can they fund themselves out of this? Yes, yes. Although there's, there's a formula, I think, set up in the Florida statute as to which police agencies and the hierarchy and all that get a cut and how. But the seizing agency does get a cut. But it's, it's law enforcement that gets funded, in effect, with this money. Yes, yes law enforcement does. Or law enforcement, the agency gets to use the car. If it likes your SUV and wants to yeah. — they can keep it. They don't even have to put it in the pot. They don't have to go sell it. They can use it under the And statute. I — do you know uh, — I mean, I, I think I think I can suspect the correct answer, but I'll ask you anyway. Do you know uh, whether there was any such scheme as this in place in, in the 1790s in the instance of the ship seizure that I was talking with you about earlier? No, I don't. The, no, I don't know whether the, the, see, the people that seize it got it. No. That's probably a, a modern notion, I would imagine, oh, I th- that, you, that you fund your agency out of the, uh, out of the proceeds of, of your forfeitures. Yes, very modern, in fact. In fact, as I understand it, that, that was the idea behind the federal statute. And the federal statute is similar to the Florida statute in this respect. That is, that the seizing agency gets the option of either, of either being able to keep the, uh, the goods themselves. It's a healthy incentive to enforce the law, don't you? Oh, it is indeed, and too healthy if a magistrate hasn't reviewed it to make sure. It, the magistrate serves an auditing function in the sense that, uh, you know, not that I imply that the law officers are dishonest, but it will keep them honest. Moreover, on the real 
borderline cases, this is all the more reason that you want a disinterested, neutral, and attached magistrate. Finally, the government, I think, relies upon uh, the Watson case for the idea that if you can seize a person in a public place, why can you not seize uh, the property itself? You've already addressed that. The answer to that, of course, is that, first, this is a civil forfeiture case. This is not a criminal case. You have certain safeguards of a constitutional nature, Gerstein versus Pugh, for the seizure of You, you say uh, that Watson, Watson was a criminal case. Right? Watson was a criminal case, yes, but this is a forfeiture case. And uh, why is that different? Pardon? Oh, because in — you have civil remedies. You have civil standards. That is to say, probable cause and all is the ultimate standard well, for the forfeiture of the vehicle. But you would think perhaps that there would be more protections against seizure in a criminal case than there would be in a civil case. There are for a person. For instance, you get a first appearance in Florida within 24 hours. Um, you get uh, the right to counsel if you're yeah, indigent. But you can be arrested without a warrant. You can be arrested without a warrant for a felony outside of your home under Watson under the circumstances of law. So if the police need a, a warrant to, to arrest, in effect, or seize a car in a public place where they have probable cause to know that the, cro- the car was an instrumentality of a crime, I would certainly think a fortiori they would need a warrant to arrest a person in a public place, although they have probable cause to believe that the person is or has engaged in a crime. Well, the Watson decision holes otherwise in that respect. No, no, I'm talking about logic. Oh, yes, logically. Not only logically, but as I recall, Justice Powell said that logic would dictate that, but that history is against it. All right, so what we would do, if we decided in your favor, we would then have to say that these other cases were wrong, but simply established uh, the law through precedent. Well, no, I don't think you would have to say that these other cases were wrong if you mean Watson, because that's dealing — it's different because in Watson you've given them certain constitutional protections, such as the right to a first appearance within uh, 24 hours, 48 hours at the most, the right to a probable cause hearing where the burden's on the government to prove probable cause, the right to appointment of counsel if you're an indigent to help you make that decision where you don't have those rights, and any rights that you do have here are merely of a statutory and evanescent (coughs) nature. But isn't there a, a, a public safety rationale behind the, the warrantless arrest, which does not apply here? Yes, there is. And, in fact, in Watson, they specifically cited that old Massachusetts case, Rohan versus Swain, I think, in which they stated that the public safety uh, was implicated in their decision. That's what they referred to in, in basing it on Watson. And was there also a factor that the, a person is mobile and here there was no assertion that this car, uh, as the cars that are under the car exception, might go across the border. I mean, the car had been there, invisible, and able to be taken for some period of time. There was certainly no assertion, and the record doesn't support any idea that the car was going to go anywhere. I mean, they wouldn't have waited 68 to 80 days if they had thought that the car or the individual was going to be abscond. How long had the car been in the parking lot where it was seized? That I don't know, but what I can say... It hadn't been there 80 days, had it? No, but it might have been there every day. Nothing in the record indicates it was there for 80 days. Pardon? Nothing in the record indicates it was there for 80 days. No. Nothing in the record indicates that the police had it under surveillance for 80 days, does it? No. No. However, the record does indicate that he was arrested as an employee at his place of employment. Uh, 
So and there was no suspicion that at that time the car was carrying contraband? I mean, they had the crack happened to turn no, open? No, no. That was conceded below by the State. And, in fact, you can find that in the Florida Supreme Court opinion. Have, have we held uh, that you can have a, an arrest of a person without a warrant for uh, an offense less than a felony? Not that I know of. Watson dealt with a felony. Not that I know of. So you, 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 you can argue that uh, um, this is uh, more analogous to a uh, misdemeanor arrest than it is to a felony arrest, the seizing of property that is, that is forfeit. Yes, without a warrant. Do you say that uh, we have not held that a police officer can arrest someone without a warrant for a misdemeanor committed in the presence of the officer? Oh, no. No. No, I wouldn't say that. No, if that occurred in his presence. The problem here, of course, is, is that what occurred occurred 68 to day, 80 days earlier. At this point, if there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Galden. Uh, Mr. Kowski, you have four minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Forfeiture is a process. It's not just the activity of seizing the car. And, and the Florida statute is very clear with regard to that. The seizure of the vehicle commences forfeiture proceedings. It is not the end all. So to suggest that somehow the police are acting um, beyond the pale and doing something that they shouldn't do because there's going to be monies coming to the agency at some point, I believe, is not a sound basis to suggest that forfeiture is not a valid basis upon which to be able to seize without a a warrant. Watson, I believe, is very controlling with regard to this instance, uh, whether an individual who has committed a felony and had, there's probable cause by the police officers to arrest or, in fact, he sees the individual committing a misdemeanor in his presence. I don't believe that there's a dime's worth of difference, to be very frank, between that and the bottom line of seizing a vehicle where the officers understand, believe, and have knowledge and probable cause based on that knowledge that this vehicle is an instrumentality in a criminal endeavor. In this particular instance, the police did not just willy-nilly go down to the Sam's parking lot and seize the car. They had an arrest warrant and they arrested Mr. White on other charges, on other narcotics charges. And as a part of that, they seized the vehicle because they had the requisite probable cause based on earlier conduct by this defendant. The state would submit that there has nothing been done during this event nor any other event that similarly tracks the ability of the government to go and seize vehicles without a pre-seizure warrant. In fact, that is uh, done throughout this country on a daily basis based on the Federal Forfeiture Acts and other state forfeiture acts. And in fact, many states and many, in, in particular other Supreme Courts and the Federal Government have relied heavily with regard to the applicability of the Cooper decision, of the applicability of Watson and of GM. And with regard to our GM argument, um, uh, the reason, one of the reasons why I believe that we did not rely on so heavily on that was the second prong of this, was that we wanted to make sure that the, the, the court understood that we we're not talking about real property. There was a discussion with regard to the Florida Supreme Court about Florida Department of Law Enforcement versus real property in their opinion. And that case dealt with real property. We we're talking about personal property such as vehicles and other instrumentalities of criminal act, not real property, which is an exception under the Florida statutes with regard to forfeiture. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nukowski. The case is submitted.